0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selina Bartlett. Today we're joined by Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari. She is a professor and she's a deputy chair in the Department of Psychology at the Hunter College and Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's also a primary investigator on a grant looking at difficult emotions in adolescence and how I came to really understand her contribution and why we have her on the podcast is she's written a book called Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. And I really loved the article she wrote for the Wall Street Journal in Praise of Anxiety. Welcome, Tracy, to the podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Selena. Really great to be here with you.
0: So do you want to tell the audience a little bit about who you are?
1: Sure, Um, I uh, started life as a classical musician for those musicians out there. I was an oboist, (laughs) one of the most uptight of the uh, orchestral family, (laughs) if you know the (laughs) instrument.
0: But fun, definitely fun,
1: (laughs) definitely fun. Um, I now, you know, as a professor of psychology and also as a writer and uh, a digital therapeutics entrepreneur, I I, uh, have a few hats I wear. I live in Manhattan with my family I have a husband. I have two kids. Uh, my son just turned 14 oh, wow. Friday, wow. as a matter of fact.
0: Wow. And my
1: daughter turned 11 a month ago. Yeah, Thank you. Wow. Um, and I'm a fur baby mother as well. I have a little Yorkie poo named Nochi that we, uh, we adopted a few years ago. Um, and, uh, and what else to say about me? This uh, Future Tense is actually my first book. I've been you know, a scientist for 20 years, and I, I sort of looked up Uh, Just a handful of years ago, after just being in the research lab and realized I had a lot I wanted to say to people and to try to translate some of this work
0: I've been doing and also
1: to kind of draw conclusions that maybe the research didn't draw. So um,
0: I'm really happy to be speaking with you all. Thank you so much for doing that. And uh, because it's so easy to keep going, isn't it? And we're under a lot of pressure to keep going. So I was really uh, interested to learn um, a little bit about your transition from being a musician. To becoming a psychologist, and that was really interesting how you did that. Do you want to describe how that happened?
1: Yes, I was, uh, as I said, studying classical music. Uh, I was at a, a conservatory called the Eastman School of Music, which is in upstate New York, in New York State, in the States. And it's also part of the University of Rochester, which is uh, you know, this large university system, and I had the great opportunity to take classes in anything that fascinated me while I was studying music. So I was drawn to psychology pretty early on and started taking courses. And I volunteered at a place called the Mount Hope Family Center, where they had just started really uh, studying child development and and also child vulnerability and resilience from a very uh, rigorous scientific standpoint, really early in the field. And I was working on a study of child maltreatment where kids were brought into our program who'd suffered documented abuse and maltreatment. And my first job was to go into the basement of Child Protective Services where they had documented all these really terrible instances. And I would pull the files of kids I was working with every day. And I would have to code the different experiences they'd have for the type of abuse. Was it sexual, physical, maltreatment? What was the severity? What were the details? It was, even to this day, I'm I'm actually feeling my throat close up remembering how terrible these stories were. But then I would go, you know, that later that week, I'd work with these kids, and they were still so bright and beautiful. And it just, over the, the months that I was working with them, I think it awoke something in me that I didn't really know was there. Um, this passion for understanding, what is this that allows children uh, who were so harmed to still be resilient, to still find hope? Um, and how do we help them do that? Uh, because it can be very, a very dark a dark path when you've suffered these kinds of experiences, as so many people do. And so in my junior year at conservatory, I sort of out of the blue made an announcement to everyone, <laughs> I'm leaving music, I'm going to pursue psychology, but I think it was the right choice. I've been getting up every morning thinking only about the work and these kids and learning more. And, and so it was a, I made the shift and, and went on to grad school and uh, got a degree in clinical psychology and then retrained in neuroscience. And I've been a researcher really every, ever since.
0: Well, that's uh, wonderful for us because I I think music teaches us a lot about discipline and mindset and all of these other things too. So they're really good for your brain, aren't they? Oh, Uh, good
1: point. Yeah. yeah.
0: So in the book that you wrote, um, in praise of anxiety and that, and then your book future tense, why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. Uh I, I've, I've learned through that last conversation that this came about from your 20 years of research and seeing something that you want to share uh, with the others or the public in a different way. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Well, I, I did officially become a, a psychologist about 20 years ago, um, and I defended my dissertation on September 11th, 2001, as a matter of oh, fact, wow. on the nine eleven. Uh, I was in Pennsylvania, uh, but I was living in the city and as I was defending the towers were falling. So I came out as a newly minted PhD into a completely different world, one in which I knew better than ever that this was the right field. This was a a time when the mental health crisis was the the pressing health crisis of our era. There was so much to recover from. And so I put my head down for those 20 years and did research on emotional health, on anxiety, on, you know, on, uh, on, on resilience and stress and, and really tried to look at it from all these angles. And when I looked up about five years ago, just to see where, where are things, how are treatments going, how are, how's the state of mental health, really we're not doing, not only are we not doing any better than we were 20 years ago, by some metrics we're doing worse. And anxiety disorders in particular, which I've really come to specialize in over these years, those are on this upward trajectory with our young people, especially, despite the fact that we have many excellent treatments. I myself have contributed to some of the body of research testing out these treatments. We have pharmaceutical interventions for, for those for whom it's appropriate. We have uh, wellness, science-based wellness practices that are excellent. We know a lot. So why are we doing worse than ever before? And There are many answers to that question, so I'm not going to pretend it's a simple answer, but I believe one answer that we ignore or don't really fully wrap our arms around is that what we mental health professionals have taught people about mental health and anxiety in particular is actually one of the blockers, is actually inadvertently, I think, accelerating some of these mental health problems that we struggle with, because the only story we tell of mental health is a disease story. It's a binary that you have it or you don't. Like you have cancer or you don't. You have mental health or you don't. And mental health is somehow the absence of emotional struggle or the absence of bad feelings. But the opposite is true. And so there's this downward extension of this disease model that actually primes us to do all the unhelpful things, actually, when it comes to our mental health and well-being and fewer of the helpful things. And so I think in this, again, completely unintentional and inadvertent way, we meant I'm and I am part of this group I'm calling out. We mental health professionals have actually conveyed some harmful fallacies about anxiety in particular. Do you want and to- we have the opportunity to fix some of those fallacies.
0: So let's talk about this. We love dichotomies as humans. <laughs> we love <laughs> we black <do>. and white. <laughs> it's just makes our life easier in a complex yeah, world. Exactly. But can you talk yeah. about I want to talk about with you the two sides of that fence, if that's okay. Let's talk about what you think are the unhelpful downward trajectory. And then then let's switch to the other side. And then obviously we've got to walk the fence between the two to bring them together. But do you mind doing that as oh, your love to do expertise? That.
1: Thank you. No, I, I think it's a, it's a story we, that we need to explore and tell. And I believe the story is, it goes something like this. Uh, we as psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health professionals, We've to make mental health a, a, appear to be a valid human struggle. We've realized we have to medicalize it, and so in these efforts, our models out there were physical health models, which means oh, if it's something that's worth treating, it has to be a disease. And so the fallacies when it comes to mental health that come along with that is that oh, well, if it's a disease, it means if I struggle with mental health, um, that um, it's a malfunction. or or that feeling those difficult feelings are dangerous. And and then fast on its heels, the second fallacy is that, well, if it's a disease or it's a dangerous malfunction, we have to fix and eradicate it. So that when we are, for example, anxious, and we perceive that that anxious, we feel it, it's sort of the three Fs, right? We feel that anxiety is dangerous when we experience it. We fear it because we think of it as a disease state. And then the third F is we flee from it, we avoid it. Because what do you do w- with cancer? You don't hang out with cancer and you know, uh, just, just kind of hope that it's going to resolve itself. You have to eradicate it. But that's when we try to eradicate anxiety, when we suppress it, when we avoid it, it always makes it worse. So anything you suppress is going to come back stronger. And it's an opportunity cost. Because when it comes to mental health, what we really need to do is we need to build skills in working with these difficult feelings like anxiety, sadness, fear, right? And and to learn how to distinguish an anger and how to distinguish these feelings from a disorder such as an anxiety disorder. But now we equate all feelings of anxiety with a disorder. So therefore, of course, we're going to try to suppress and eradicate it instead of finding ways to work with it, even listen to it and consider that maybe this emotion, which is so painful, actually has advantages to it that we've evolved to have.
0: Yes. So that's, uh, and what about the other side? Uh, that's the, you are talking about the flip side of the evolutionary advantages. So what this reminds me of, uh, we interviewed Dr. Randolph Nessie on the podcast, mm-hmm. um, one of the founders of the field in evolutionary psychiatry and medicine. And he talks just what you were, like You're you're talking exactly in the same, light, except I think think you might be more in modern uh, treatment of younger people and thinking in that way. So his work started in the 80s and he was a psychiatrist helping a lot of people and then discovered that it wasn't really helping in a way. So he went to work out why we have all this anxiety and he worked with George Williams, the founder of the field. Mm -hmm. And what he talks about is yes, we're meant to have anxiety because it's 50% of what he was looking at was social anxiety Mm -hmm. because we need to belong in our tribes. And if we have any sense that we mightn't be belonging for lots of these reasons you're discussing, then it makes us feel afraid because we need to be in our tribe for survival. So I'm interested in your take on his message as well.
1: And, I, and I, you know, I know of their important work, and evolutionary theory is very fundamental to the perspective I take, because I've been trained as what's called a functional emotion theorist, which is very evolutionary. By the way, um, Darwin, uh, I don't know if you guys mentioned this in your discussion, uh, but Darwin in his trilogy, so his, his evolutionary theory really was written out in three books, the third of which was the expression of emotion in Man and Animals, a whole third of evolutionary theory is about the double-edged sword adaptive nature of emotion. And so when when you think about any emotion from an evolutionary perspective, it has two pieces to it, fundamentally. Emotions are information and preparation. And Darwin even said this, this is not new. <laughs> this is, you know, what was it, 180, 190 years ago. And what that means is that all of these emotions, which are painful by design often, because they need us to sit up and pay attention, Right. As you say, the social anxiety example, if you're not with the tribe, you are dead from an evolutionary perspective. So it has to grab you. But in the case of anxiety, it's a really interesting emotion. We can contrast it with fear to understand why. So fear, the information is that you face a certain and present threat, like a snake is about to to bite you. And there's no there's no ambiguity about that. So that's information. The preparation is that the three F's right. You freeze, fight or take flight. And so uh, fear evolved to help us do that. Anxiety has nothing to do with the present moment. Anxiety is apprehension about the uncertain future. And that information is that the the future, which you cannot know for sure, but when you're anxious, you know that something bad could happen. That's that threat and, and that dread. But anxiety tells you that something good is also possible, that there's still hope. And the, so with that information in hand, and you're, and you're really holding these two complex things in your mind, right? It's a triumph of human evolution to be able to imagine these futures of two, of two paths. But when you hold it in mind, what anxiety prepares you to do, it primes us to persist, to work hard, and to make those positive outcomes into reality so we can avert disaster. And so if, if anxiety were only about future dread, we would just, we would despair. And that's not the, then that's a different emotion. <laughs> so, so anxiety from an evolutionary perspective, it's a civilization builder because we're imagining the future, things that haven't happened and we're creating the best possible outcome we can. And so why, if you think about the danger of just suppressing and eradicating and medicating this emotion out of existence, it's profound because anxiety is a feature of being human. It is not a bug or malfunction.
0: Yes, and so, and I bet you see this a lot because um, I certainly did uh, when I was living in America. Is that parents don't want their kids to be anxious? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! So yeah. it's and as parents, we're always trying to do the best thing for our children, of course, right? And it's a very competitive situation too for people to get into the top colleges and and all of those kind of things. And other people are just trying to survive. I understand that too, but. Really, what we're doing is disabling our children.
1: Yeah, I have to agree entirely with you. And I do live in the capital of type A parenting, um, being a Manhattanite. Um, and so much of our anxiety about our kids' anxiety is it's love, it is love. It's also anxiety about our, our our own anxiety. So we're we're also when we see our kids are anxious, we are anxious and we want to soothe our own anxiety. So, what do we do? We become what's now termed snowplow parents. It used to be helicopter parenting where we'd hover. Now we're snowplows. Yeah, this is the new phrase. (laughs) We're snowplows where we remove, yeah, we remove any obstacle to their success, happiness, comfort. So we are, as you say, though, by not allowing kids to experience challenges, by treating them as fragile, we might be indeed making them more fragile. And, and so in, in my book, uh, my chapter that I really devote to parenting and talking about kids, not only do I open up with a huge parent fail, because I really did, I've, I make as many mistakes as everyone, um, but the chapter is called Kids Are Not Fragile. And I introduced this idea that was a term that was coined by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb called anti-fragility, yeah. this idea that there are things and systems that gain from disorder or from challenge. Um, So the immune system is anti-fragile, because if you don't throw germs and microbes at it, it will never learn to function. Our muscles are that. We have to strain and work them for them to work and to build strength. Well, our emotions, especially anxiety, are anti-fragile systems. We have to and allow our kids to learn to work through and build skills with these emotions, or they will not be able to be as effective uh, in working and working with the difficult human emotions we all face.
0: I love this um, topic right now because I think this goes across everything really, doesn't it? So when we're in society now, what we're what we're correlating with this disablement of kids is digital devices. Mm-hmm. But it's a combination, isn't it? hmm Is what Yeah, you, I, I, that, that's a great point. Out. Right. <laughs> we blame it
1: all. We lay it at the foot of the machines, right? <laughs> But we, so we aren't seeing our role, we aren't seeing our role as well, not that we have to blame ourselves or parent blame, but there's also seeing patterns that are in ways that we can be more helpful and less helpful. Um, and that's why I've always been, I think this binary, again, talking about the binary, I think that there are problems with social media, I think there are problems with the digital uh, infrastructures that run our lives, but I think to blame everything on them is a missed opportunity because... There's so much more that's contributing to our kids' ability to build, to learn to love, to learn to create, to learn to tell falsehood from truth. I mean, these are, Eric Fromm defined that in his, uh, you know, in his, some of his great work, especially uh, the SANE Society, you know, he talked about how, what is mental health? How do we diagnose it or not diagnose it? It comes down to these three things. Can we as human beings, do we have the ability and are we empowered to love to create and to tell falsehood from truth and so many factors are interrupting our kids and our own ability to develop those core human capacities
0: yeah sometimes it's a flip back because if uh if because before the previous generation was a bit more hands-off parenting but also more involved parenting in a way Mm. because it was more less complex like there was normally one parent at home or all sorts mm. of things it was quite different and with the shift towards individualization and and attachment to material possessions over emotional development in a way so there's so many confounding features that I can see you're talking about so it's not even so many, yeah so I many. think of
1: Growing up in the 80s, I, I, I joke about this because my parents weren't actually all that hands off, but I felt like they would let me play with glass if I wanted to. You know, they're yeah. like, or hop on your bike and go. I grew up in the suburbs, go into the woods, hop on yeah. your bike. And these are small but fundamental things that, as you say, uh, has steadily been eroded over the past few decades for various reasons.
0: So this leads to us um, to before we move to your book, which I think the audience will love to hear what your take-home messages are etc but let's talk a little bit about your research in your lab um, and the fund a a grant that you've been funded to investigate difficult emotions in adolescence Mm -hmm. this is something all of us struggle with I think across the generations forever (laughs) because it is an adolescent brain it's it's got lots of features for good reasons Mm -hmm. do you want to tell us a little bit about what that research is showing you or what you're what exactly what you're doing
1: Sure, Um, I have a few streams of research, but this particular study, the IDEA study, the Investigating Difficult Emotions in Adolescence study, it's actually a study of teen risk for suicide. And I'm working with my incredible collaborator, Regina Miranda, who's also an an internationally recognized researcher uh, on suicide in youth. And we joined forces on the study because, you, you know, my research lab has been, you know, for two decades called the Emotion Regulation Lab. And really it's you know that term, which I think has become much more popular. Back then it was a little more off-putting to people to call it emotion regulation. But now we know that emotion regulation is about this way of working with and experiencing emotions that can lead to positive outcomes, but also to get in our way and to create risk. And, and I, I've studied a lot of um, kind of you know used multiple tools for understanding how emotions develop and how we learn to regulate well or poorly including neuroscience measures, as well as the context of parenting and and culture as well. And so Dr. Miranda and I really joined forces on this project because we, um, there was a call from the NIH to understand not just general risk factors, but proximal risk factors that can create heightened risk for suicide. Because we know that we don't understand risk for suicide all that well. But something we do know is that once someone has made an attempt or started having intense suicidal ideation that within that first year afterwards, that is the riskiest period for an actual suicide to be attempted and and, and God forbid, but maybe completed. Um, So we are are really studying from multiple standpoints, the emotional uh, and and biological profile of, of young teens, many of whom are Latina, Latino, and underrepresented groups and experiencing Um, in our group, some significant other risk factors, what might actually uh, be some of the most direct predictors of what might increase ideation over time or even lead to an an attempt. And we recruit people when they're in the emergency room department when they've had a crisis um, and they've been brought there to try to protect their lives. So um, it's a very, um, I really wanna shout out to my colleague again, Regina, Dr. Miranda, It's an incredibly important study. It's, um, we feel the incredible responsibility of Mm -hmm. gaining this knowledge and then translating it as quickly as possible into the real world. And so much of of the suicidal um, experience I think is about these emotions of, of feelings of belonging, feelings of hope, you know, feelings of, you know it's both the social and the individual and the, you know all of these things are coming together to really lead people to make these, these, you know, to kind of lead them inexorably down this path. And we have to do everything we can to give them tools they can use to, to um, step off that path.
0: So this seems like it's a really big intersection between how you came into psychology. I think, I think, you, you know,
1: I've always, yeah, with kids, Well, say more about what you mean about
0: that. Yeah. So like you're, you were noticing their resilience and all of these things, and now you're dealing with the other side of it, where the, where it doesn't always play out that way. And um, in these, because of the, you know, we know that disadvantage of poverty, incarceration, uh, racism, all these things play a big role in leading to mental health crises. So it's like you're trying to work out how do you tease apart the ones that are doing post-traumatic growth versus vulnerability and susceptibility and trying to work out how to distinguish that. Yeah. And
1: where are the, where are the leverage points where, of course, it's um, there are these vulnerabilities, but sometimes these vulnerabilities can give us insight into the double-edged sword of human resilience, right? So, so we know that a thwarted, you know, a thwarted sense of belongingness that, or the feeling that you're burdensome to your loved ones, or, you know, the, this feeling of hopelessness that your future cannot change, like all of these are are pressure points and tipping points. And so, if we know that, and we understand more about the subtleties of that and the individual differences that how individuals experience that separately in the context in which they're living. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, those are the, that's the work that is so important and, and needs to be done. So you're right. I think I have started to come full circle.
0: <laughs> so what has been the most dis- surprising discovery really that you've made that you weren't really expecting to make going in with, you know, that's the beauty of science is you have, a yeah. hypothesis, but it doesn't always play out. So that's what science is <laughs> all the time, actually.
1: <laughs> well, you know, um, one um, area of research that I've I've uh, been focused on for the past oh I think about 15 years now is um, is a alternative intervention approach uh, called attention bias modification. So we know that cognitive behavioral therapies broadly are some of our best most most empirically validated treatments. There's a there's under that umbrella an, an, an approach called cognitive bias modification where instead of CBT, which, which really targets very conscious, deliberative talk with your counselor, work through these, um, you know, these unhelpful maladaptive thoughts and behavior patterns. Instead, what cognitive bias modification does is targets unconscious biases that we may not be really aware of at all that are also drivers of a host of mental health challenges like anxiety disorders, like major depressive disorder, like addiction, and the list goes on. And the beauty of these techniques, I focus on one called attention bias modification and actually Colin McLeod, who is an Australian uh, mm-hmm. uh, researcher, really is the father of the attention bias modification research and, and approach. Um, you know What we are seeing now is that we can use in these actual computerized intervention approaches because they're native digital, they were meant to be put on screens Um, We can uh, develop brief interventions that help to retrain and um, kind of, and to to target what are unconscious biases. We can retrain these kind of, the brain, uh, you know, that sounds like a cheesy retrain the brain, but really that's what we're doing. um, Through these interactions um, that can be administered on the screen, that can be administered through games, um, and that you can uh, recalibrate how we pay attention to and make sense of the world, to reduce uh, anxiety and depression and a lot of other problems. So when I first started doing that research, I thought there's no way this can work. It's too simple. You're looking at kind of images on the screen and you're just responding to them. You don't have to think about it, but we have found through decades of this research that there are really some powerful effects both as a standalone treatment and then adjunctively to more traditional therapeutic approaches. So, And the fact that it can be gamified and, and, and delivered on, on devices is an incredibly important goal for reducing barriers to mental health access. So it's been something that I've now devoted my research to, I've co-founded a company to you know, try to actually get this treatment out to people. So it's, um, it's very exciting, but it still surprises me every time, yeah. <laughs> but the evidence is there. So I keep on following the evidence uh, breadcrumb trail. <laughs>
0: uh, this is, this is a deep conversation because one, when we started the podcast, we're talking about the things that take us down the path of making anxiety worse for people. And then on the flip side, neuroplasticity, which is the idea that you can train your brain to, to get resilience and grit and all these other things, which are really physical connections in the brain, retraining the brain. Uh, this, this As you know, this is such a powerful uh, controversy, as you're saying yourself. And even you can't even say those words now without people saying it doesn't work. For example, mm-hmm. you can't re- tra- you can't do brain training.
1: Well, thank you, Lumosity, who ruined it for everyone.
0: I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you remember that company. Oh, no, I, I know Michael Merz. They
1: got the pants sued off them for making false claims. But anyway, yes, yes, you can't say it.
0: <laughs> yeah, but now that's flying across just the general public as well. So... And, you know, so we talked about CBT as being the most effective, but when does CBT make it worse if you have all these unconscious, subconscious biases that you're not aware oh, of?
1: Yeah. yeah, well, that's Very interesting. People. And it doesn't work for everyone. CBT is one of the gold standard treatments. But first of all, you know, a, a small proportion of people can access it, especially in the United States where we have an extra big problem with accessing healthcare. Um, and then, you know, over time, up to 50% of people remit after gold standard treatment. And so again, kind of, I'm sorry to circle back to my book, but in a way, yeah, please do. when I wrote it, <laughs> maybe I think you were doing that, you set me up. Thank you very well. You know, I wrote this book thinking, this is a mystery we have to solve because we have these great treatments, you know, why aren't they working? And I think what happens when we even receive the treatments and they don't work in a sustained way, is that the mindset that we have about our well-being and our health and our emotional life and what it means to be mentally healthy that our mindsets are actually blocking us from even benefiting from some of these treatments when we can access them.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: So for example, if we consider anxiety a disease and we have and we are di- we struggle with anxiety we're diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and we go and receive gold standard cognitive behavioral therapy. What does the therapist ask us to do when we're in therapy? you have to engage with experience and expose yourself to this anxiety this thing that we've already on this by the on the other side of our mouth like we're talking at both sides for mouth. we've convinced you no it means you're broken it means that there's something wrong with you but you have but then we're saying but you have to really go through it and experience it <laughs> so how can we have and what my book is what I'm trying to articulate in my book is that There are anxiety disorders. I'm not saying they don't exist, but what I am saying is that no matter where you are on the spectrum of anxiety, day-to-day anxiety or debilitating anxiety, the only way out is through because anxiety is a normal part of being human and anxiety disorders are only diagnosed when the ways we're coping with anxiety are getting in our way. So with that, then the equation becomes something different because then it becomes oh, so I can build skills to work with this normal human emotion so that it doesn't get in my way. And and when we really take the evolutionary route, we see that anxiety isn't just, oh, it's just, it's it's not that it's not, oh, it's not so bad. It's actually a powerful source of creativity. It primes us for social connection. It primes us to persist in the face of obstacles. And I would even argue that anxiety makes us more hopeful because it puts us in this future tense, this future way of thinking, where we still see that something good is possible. And we believe we have the ability to make that dream come true. Yeah. And so yeah. when we leverage that, we can start to break the vicious cycle of anxiety and build what I call a virtuous cycle of anxiety.
0: And so yeah, the interesting point there, Tracy, is that um, we might be feeling anxious about going out into a social situation, especially post-pandemic and all of that. But it's actually saying go. Whereas, yeah. but where's the way we've taught people with this feeling is to stay and isolate more.
1: Right. Make it go away. Oh, you're feeling socially anxious. Let me soothe you. Let me make it go away. Now we do, you know, when I talk about the virtuous cycle of anxiety, and I think as you say, social anxiety is a crucial. Example, what is a virtuous cycle of anxiety? I call, well, I, I've, I've been coming up with letters to describe everything. So the vicious cycle is the three F's, right? You feel it's dangerous, you fear it and you flee from it. But the virtuous cycle is the three L's. You listen to it, right? You, you know that it's like, like Darwin taught us and everyone since, it's information and it's preparation. So you listen to it, you leverage it for whatever goals it's pointing you to, And then you learn to let go of it. and then you can say, okay, I've been in this future tense for long enough. Now I can come back to the present and I can take, take care of myself. Maybe I need self-care. Maybe I need to talk to a friend or a therapist or do yoga or, you know, uh, enjoy the beauty of the world. I need to bring myself back to the present flow so I can rejuvenate myself because we can't always be in the future tense. But but we never do the first two steps. We don't listen and we don't leverage. We just go right to let go.
0: So a quick, quick question on that. Um, just from what I know, how the brain's developed and formed over evolutionary history. Does talking about it too much make it worse too because it becomes the story mm-hmm. as well? It's very
1: interesting. And- yeah, yeah. It depends on what, right. So we're having more conversations about mental health, but are they the helpful ones? For me, when I say, listen, and here, here's actually sort of... Um, This translates into an actionable sort of uh, framework that explains what I mean by listen, that's a little different than just talking about. Um, So many of us, myself included, will sometimes wake up at, you know, 3 or 4 a.m. You have the worries going through your head. All of us have experienced that. And when we wake up like that, it stinks. It doesn't feel good. But often when that happens, these worries are sometimes information that we can benefit by listening to. this happens to, I mean, it happens to me, you know, pretty often um, just like uh, a week or so ago, I woke up early and uh, couldn't get back to sleep. And I felt those worries start to churn. And so I decided to listen. So I took a little breath, you know, you can, you, you know, even knowing a breathing technique is good cause it sort of gives you that space. I like the four, seven, eight breathing technique which is inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. It really activates the parasympathetic nervous system and brings us down a notch breathe for just a minute. And then I said, okay, what are the worries? What's rising to the surface? And I listened. I let those feelings, I didn't fight them. I didn't eradicate them. I let them come. And I discovered, you know, that there are a few worries, but the top one is this thing at work that I left undone. I'm dropping the ball. I'm not feeling good about this. It's something, you know what, it's, I need to take care of this. And the minute I realized that was weighing on me, I then made a plan. So I leveraged that information and I said, okay, I'm gonna get up in the morning. I'm gonna send this email and do this thing that I need to do. And the minute I decided that action plan, my anxiety went down because I was, and I was listening to its rise and I was listening to its fall. And I knew that that was at least part of the answer for me. I'm on the right track. And once I had the, I had the information, I had the preparation, then it was time to let go. I needed a few more hours of sleep, frankly. So I, I just, you know, oh, you might hear my dog in the background. Sorry about that. <laughs> all
0: right.
1: I, you know, I, with that kind of calmer state, because I'd made an action plan, I was able to rest a little. I kind of, you know, I was in and out of sleep for a bit. And eventually I was able to go back to sleep. I was able to get back to a restful state where I let go of that future thinking because I listened and leveraged. Now that's not going to happen every time or work every time perfectly, but I get better at it the more I do it. And sometimes my best ideas come when I just listen to the mishmash of feelings and thoughts in my head that are uncomfortable, but important.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's just face it. You're running a big lab. You're raising now about to have teenagers. It, It is real. So what we talk about a lot in my books and on the podcast is how do you protect yourself from that? Because it's a real set of things happening. It's not pretend, um, that yeah. That's a huge amount of things <clears throat> on me that we're juggling. So because sleep's so important, yeah. uh, they've shown seven to nine hours is absolutely essential for our health because it gets rid of toxins and that build up over our lifespan. You know, so what we want to think about is how we listen earlier too, so that yeah. we don't have to listen when we're subconscious <laughs> or asleep. I
1: mean, that's so and right, and it becomes a practice, right? And actually, listening to I have a little dog. Uh, <laughs> until he comes in, come here, Noach. Um, you will laugh, and I will admit this to everyone. If you if you're not editing this out of the podcast, but I have the most anxious dog on the planet, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I try to tell him listen, leverage, and let go, but it's a, a little harder with a fur baby. So he uh, he wanted to be in this room. So forgive. So me, I, I think hope. that
0: this does. <laughs> this is what we talk about a lot. Is Humans are separate from animals in this regard because we have a prefrontal cortex that's a yes. bit larger that we can oh, leverage. We
1: work at it. Oh God, I have to consult with a really good canine therapist. I think I'm trying, my tricks aren't working. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so from your book, um, for people listening that want to you know, read your book, can you just give them a couple of tips or strategies that you wrote in there for awakening wellness, to embrace anxiety, to lead a healthier, and more thriving life?
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, my, my, my book is, it's definitely in this realm of self-help, but it's really more of an idea book. And uh, the whole, really, if I achieve one thing, it's to ask people to consider, to reconsider the role of anxiety in their life. So the whole book is sort of a mindset reset. And then at the end, I have a framework and some actionable tips for people to bring this mindset reset into their life. And it really is um, with the practices. And I'll, and I'll throw out a couple of possibilities. The, the early morning waking worries ones is a, good, is a good one. Because really what you are doing when, you're, when you rethink and change your mindset about anxiety is that I'm going to take every time I have the impulse when I feel anxious to make it go away, just create a small space to give yourself the chance to listen to it. And so the listen, leverage, and let go and know that mental health is not the absence of emotional struggle. It's actually the ability to listen to and work with and sometimes fall down, but to experience these hard emotions and come out the other side and, and, and sometimes, and and increasingly use them to make your life better and to be more aware of what matters to you in life. So I, I actually, um, and I think we've, we talked about this maybe before our conversation, um, but I, I, I write about and I'm very interested in perfectionism as a as sort of an expression of debilitating anxiety for some people. And what we see in perfectionism, now perfectionism is a standard of flawlessness, of course, where it's all or none, you either achieve this un, un, unachievable really all the time or you're an abject failure. And we know that perfectionism is just bad, full stop. It's just unhelpful. Not only does it increase uh, a lot of distress, both you know depression, anxiety, and even suicidality, real perfectionism also leads to diminishing returns. You never know when to stop putting in that effort. You never know when it's good enough. You don't learn from your mistakes because you don't allow yourself to have them. So perfectionists, ironically, actually turn out worse uh, worse, uh, Products, so to speak, or, or do less well than they than they might do otherwise because because they can't uh, actually engage in the learning process that we all have to go through. It's just too painful for them. So I talk about this alternative to perfectionism called excellenceism, which is a mouthful. I'm working on a better term, but but essentially, what's helpful about that term excellenceism is that instead of the pursuit of perfection, it's the pursuit of excellence. And the thing with that is that when you're pursuing excellent, the trick is, you know, that sometimes good is good enough. You know that to get to excellent or really good, you have to make mistakes and you become a real ninja, really agile at learning to at, at learning to learn from those mistakes. And so now you're on this journey where you have much more of a growth mindset, um, where you're able to Enjoy, engage, do your best, reach these levels that are maybe eventually 95% there, but not perfect, but you're fine with that. And when you're 50%, you know that that's okay too, because it's on the journey. And people who are excellentists do tend to be more anxious. They're striving, they're still working for this future, but not debilitatingly so. And they tend to be more innovative, more creative, and to turn out better materials and products, whether they're scientists. Or creators, or problem solvers. So this this kind of looking to the light side of the dark side of perfectionism, it really takes being able to listen and leverage and let go of anxiety. You have to see the anxiety of achievement and see it for what it is in your life, and know that you can go for excellent and leverage this, and then really let go of perfectionism as as a practice. and And there are ways to do that. There's little 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 tricks you can do. You know, I'm a dinner party perfectionist. So when I made a list of all the things that I really want to be perfect when I throw a dinner party and then made a decision, okay, I'm gonna let go of one or two. And so for me, when I did this exercise, I let go of the perfectly clean house and a meal that was completely ready when all the guests arrived. And then I observed what happened when I tried to practice that. And when I did and the house was, yeah, it wasn't, You know, there's maybe a little dust bunny here or there. And then I actually cooked dinner with my guests instead of for them, everyone had a great time. No one felt they were in a dirty house. And by letting go little by little of my perfectionism, I just brought a lot more joy to my life. And I want to have more dinner parties as a result, other, rather than it being this punishing thing I feel I have to do. So we can practice this shift in mindset um, that really has at its heart anxiety every day if we want. Uh,
0: yeah, the other thing that this comes to mind is, you know, remember the tiger mom? Oh, yes. So this is in quite the opposite direction to that, which took off in America, by the way, because her kids got into the symphony orchestra of, at eleven <laughs> or something, something, something like this, and people thought this was just brilliant. So, yeah. what is your take on that as a, as a previous musician and seeing what you see in those spaces is really quite yeah. extreme.
1: Yeah, and perfectionists are drawn to those types of spaces, of course, where precision is is necessary. Well, I, you know, I was at a conservatory, as I mentioned, Eastern School of Music, where there were definitely child prodigies running around. And, you know, you can see their achievement, but you can also see their mental health and well-being and joy. And I think that, uh, I think this pursuit of perfectionism, and I think all the data back me up, are not really conducive to well-being and joy. And, uh, and you have to really think about the cost of that. And what if you could be a tiger mom, but not, and be, is there another animal that's less tigerish? Like, is there a version for an excellenceism where you encourage your kids to grow, to make mistakes and to do their best? Whatever kind of mom that is, we can still support our kids in achieving their dreams and doing wonderful things. And we don't have to fear that they're going to fall by the wayside. Indeed. They will probably have more resilience for the long run, and they will not be falling apart and having nervous breakdowns at 30 years old or whatever it is. And I believe me, I wish on no one that. And I and I hope that the children, no, no, none of these children have that, but the data show us that that's a risk.
0: Exactly, uh, she wasn't c- concerned about the long term because of the short term gains that every yeah, child or you know each to their or-
1: own. I don't think. Um, each to their own. I don't think I want to, you know, I think if she and I were on a stage, that would be an interesting conversation.
0: Yes, I know. Cause you have all the experience <laughs> in both sides. It, it, it was just funny. It just came to my mind when you talked about that. So as we close down and thank you for your time, Tracy, it's been wonderful. You've been, it's, I think so many people benefit from this wellness and thriving across your lifespan is so much more important than just accomplishments and achievements cuz they don't go with you do they and i see this at many people at the end of their life no matter what age that is it's not the focus at all <laughs> um oh. so uh what would you say your life purpose is now and and what advice would you with all of these tools you've learned give to your younger self or or younger person trying to emulate you
1: yeah i think um I think my mission now is to change, to be part of the change that will allow people to think differently about their mental health on a fundamental level. I think we have to throw the disease story of mental health in the garbage. I think there are very few, some examples of of serious mental illness that the disease story might be helpful. But I think for most mental health problems and the ones that we talk about the most, like anxiety disorders, like major depressive disorder,
0: addiction, maybe addiction. even
1: addiction, maybe, even, right? Maybe there, I think there's a whole host of them where this disease story is actually causing more harm than good on for most people. I, so my mission is to throw that in the garbage and to, tr- and to really create a different story and model, really one uh, in which people believe in their resilience again, their mental health resilience. And they believe that, that the work of being human is messy. We are not robots. Mental health is not the absence of struggle. It is the ability to struggle and to draw on our communities and loved ones to help us in that struggle and then to give back. That's, for me, that's what I think we mental health professionals should be convincing people of. And it's really time to change the way that we're approaching mental health because I think it's pretty clear it hasn't worked. So my mission is to really start to push against the system we have now, if there are parts that are working, let's keep them. I believe in science. (laughs) You know, I think there are great tools there, but I think we have to start being very, um, we have to be very clear eyed and let go of the things that aren't working. And so my mission is to be a part of that process. Um, I am a recovering perfectionist. So I do wish that I could have given my younger self the advice of, of, um, of knowing that the mistakes that she would make would actually lead to some of the best parts of her life. And I would uh, try to convince her of that fact and to remind her that being open to those mistakes was actually the key to uh, just wonderful, amazing, unexpected things that were to come.
0: (laughs) There'll be a lot of people listening here that also like you have 10, 14-year-olds, maybe similar to you thinking have I done that to my kids or what are are you putting in place to put boundaries around? Because we always try and flip too far to the other side sometimes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. that's a really good point. I mean, I I see the job of parenting as, you know, we there is such a thing as good enough parenting. It's, you know, in in the research literature, no one is saying be a perfect parent. And, you know, the parenting self-help world, makes us feel that there's a checklist of 50 things. And if you don't check them all off, you're a failure. The truth is we can be good enough parents. If we give our kids love and unconditional positive regard, which means we don't have to approve of everything, but we have to love our kids in the, in the context of everything, even
0: the when choices. they make terrible
1: mistakes in the and choices. their choices, we don't have to agree or approve or facilitate, but the love has to be there. I think we have to follow our kids leads on what, they're passionate about and just support them because I think that's how kids find purpose in their life. And I think kids are lacking a sense of purpose today. That's pretty profound because there's so many reasons for it. Um, I think the hyper consumerism that they're sort of living through, which is just amplified on social media where they themselves are the, are the products to be consumed. (laughs) That's insane. Right. And, And that it's the number of likes and followers and this way of being, I think, erodes one's ability to find purpose and identity. So I think our job as parents is to help kids do that, even in the face of our own fears and anxiety, to know that our job is to help them through, not around those struggles, and to believe that they can come out the other side
0: stronger. Yeah, that's great advice. And some other things I've heard to people are enough, just as they are. And if you can just find enough in yourself just to love, your children unconditionally that is the ingredient that promotes post-traumatic growth birth versus the vulnerabilities that feeling of unconditional love is something that very few humans get and it's the something that's the most unappreciated cheapest <laughs> but hard to do if you've never had it because a lot of people have never had it so that and that's why people love dogs because it is really unconditional love. and that's oh, why that's where we
1: learn it. We can learn it there.
0: <laughs> but then we have to extend it to humans as well. Um, and that's the bit that I think is the missing ingredient. And um, it is
1: sometimes harder to love a human than a dog, unfortunately.
0: Well, dogs don't. Um, dogs love back unconditionally.
1: Yeah, they're, yeah, it's just much less complex, but no, I think that's I think that's absolutely
0: right. So Tracy, wonderful work. Do you want to tell everyone how they can find you, your books, um, everything?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, my book, uh, you can find pretty much everywhere. And uh, it's great when you buy from your local bookstore, you can ask them to order it in if they don't have it in stock. It's Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. And then my website is DrTracyPhD, where all sorts of stuff is there in the book and some, some uh, articles I've written and some media um, appearances as well.
0: Thank you so much for um, shifting our conversation to brain health and fitness um, and helping people see their beauty. Um, That's what our podcast is all about, is shining a light uh, on the amazingness of people and trying to change the story about how everyone's really bad. (laughs) Then the world is, you know, terrible. So thank you for being the light, Tracy. Oh, thank
1: you so much. I've loved speaking with you.
0: Thank you.